everyone. Welcome to the Canadian Jewish Schmooze. We hope you all had a sweet and happy new year. Shana Tova to everyone. Shana Tova, Gulam. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Rabbi Robin Fryer Bodzin, the new rabbi at Beth Sedek here in Toronto. And she and I are going to be chatting about a story I wrote for the CJN this week about Jewish vegans. Well, I'm an ideological vegan, so I believe in veganism. I just don't practice it. <laughs> oh, you, you, don't, you don't eat the idea of meat. We're also going to be talking about some statements Andrew Scheer has made. Of course, he's the conservative candidate for prime minister about foreign aid, UNRWA, and the UN Security Council. And finally, we're going to be asking, do Jews really need to worry about the theory of the right of return, particularly in the light of uh, an announcement by Spain that they're going to be inviting Jews back? So to start things off, uh, Rabbi, thank you for joining us so soon after the holidays. Oh, in my this, pleasure. In the midst of the holidays, really. Definitely in the midst. Did Just, you know today's a fast day? No. I learned when I offered the rabbi some water. <laughs> it's some Gedalia. What, I don't know what that is. Gedalia was a general who was assassinated, and it says in the prophetic literature that these are this is a fast day. Is it going to be hard for you to talk about food for <laughs> the next 15 minutes? Not at all, because on Yom Kippur, all people do is talk to me about not eating. So I think it'll be just the same. <laughs> Perfect. Um, just to give people a little bit of an introduction, uh, you just came back to Toronto, where you're from, to, to take the reins at Beth Sedek. Can you tell us a bit about, about yourself and how you wound up back here? Sure. Um, I grew up in Thornhill. Went to York, and uh, I left 23 years ago for one year and finally returned. I went to Wurzweiler and got an MSW there. I lived in Miami for a while working for the Jewish community. I went to Los Angeles to rabbinical school at the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies. Then I worked in Chicago in my first job as a rabbi in residence at a Jewish high school. And for the last 10 years, I led my own congregation in Queens, New York. And somehow it was time to come home, and everything worked out, and everything was aligned. And I am now the associate rabbi of Beth Sedek Congregation. And along the way, you became a vegan at some point there. So I, I, I found you because I was writing this article about Jewish vegans. Uh, you can find it on the cover of this week's CJN. You had a, a kind of fun, well, funny, at least to me, story about how you became a vegan. I'm wondering if you could share it with listeners right now. Sure. It was one of these years like this year when the High Holy Days were very, very late. Um, and we lived in a very small house with a very small kitchen in New York City in Queens. And it was very difficult to keep a kosher kitchen that everything was in the right place. So what we decided to do was just use our meat dishes for weeks and weeks and weeks, starting with preparation for cooking until the very end of Sukkot. And we ate so much meat and meat and chicken and meat and chicken and we felt really gross <laughs> like our bodies didn't feel good our our faces didn't look good and so my husband and I decided that we were going to try something new that we were going to go vegetarian from the end of Simchat Torah until American Thanksgiving which was about at that point maybe six weeks because the holidays were so late and then we realized that we have really bad eating uh, habits, so let's just go vegan because otherwise we would eat, um, you know, cake and ice cream and cheese the whole time. So when it came to Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving at the end of November, I just decided to keep going with it, and my husband ate a turkey leg. <laughs> and then he stayed vegan for a full other year and ate another turkey leg, and for many years that's what he did. He was vegan except for eating turkey on American Thanksgiving. Because uh, for him, that's like eating matzah or apples and honey. That's just 
that's, you know, tradition is like halacha for him. The tradition was like law. A little while after that first Thanksgiving, I was at a benefit and I came across someone who recommended a book for me called The China Study, and it changed my life completely. The China Study is based on a study in China, which mentions that people in China who eat a plant-based diet, who eat rice for the most part, or beans, don't have so many of the health issues that those of us in first world countries have, such as cancer, heart problems, anything in that world. And then I started reading other books and cookbooks and seeing how easy it was to actually cook plant-based. And then I started watching the documentaries and learning about farm factories and learning what how the environment is really ruined um, by the way we eat animals. Yeah, the, the documentaries are, are kind of what sucked my household in as well, I got to yeah. say. I, I am, I don't know, maybe 80% vegan at home. Uh, I, I think the best term to describe it is flexitarian now. That's the new trendy term. That's a real term? It's a real term. And apparently it's like the, the rising group of people like me who are mostly vegan. We like the idea, but we're, we're, we're too uh, wishy-washy to commit 100%. <laughs> Do you like the idea of the food or you like the idea of the of no harm to animals? So for me, actually, there are like several good reasons to be vegan. Number one for me is money because sure. you just like, you know, not eat, buying cheese, especially here in Canada where the import prices are so high and not eating meat. It's just cheaper. Kosher brisket. Come on. You know how expensive that is? I don't buy it. Saves uh, me a lot of money. The <laughs> second good reason is health. These are both the selfish reasons, mm -hmm. right? It's just kind of healthier to just eat plants. Mm -hmm. The third reason is the environment. I, I, I was actually telling somebody this uh, somewhat recently. I named these three reasons why I'm vegan. And I was like, I feel like there was a fourth one. And my wife sort of hit me on the shoulder and said, the animals. Right. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. For, for me personally, I, I don't really care about animal welfare, welfare. It's fine. I'm on board with it. I don't wish harm to them. <laughs> but it's not, it's not anywhere near the top. Re the, the, the top reasons for you are entirely selfish. Okay. Money, health, the environment, which is kind of selfish, and then the animals I could take or leave. No, I'm hardcore. I don't go to zoos. Really? Yeah, I just don't. I, come on. They they were created before we were. Why should we treat them like that? It's not fair. Sometimes you just want to see a panda up close. There's Google. I went to a zoo last fall. It was not the magical experience I'd always remembered, I have to say. <laughs> I'm curious to know about how you've been treated, how, how people have reacted in your life, Rabbi, after you went vegan. Um, after my wife and I went vegan, it, it for a good year, every time I, I <laughs> every time I would go somewhere, or, you know, eat out or go to my parents, I get the question, oh, so are you still vegan? Or, or what can you, you know, is this, is this a fad? Or, or what's, what are the rules? And people seem very hyper attentive to it. Um, what's it been like for you? In a short time, there's been a massive evolution when I first started coming home to Toronto, I'd usually come for a week, two weeks in the summer, or maybe for a few days here, a simcha, God forbid, a funeral. It, it would just be so difficult. Like, people couldn't understand it. So so what do you eat? What, we have to get this in the house? I don't understand. Um, how, where do you get your protein, which is the big one? That is a big question. People can't fathom that animals get protein by eating things that aren't animals. Right? 
Um, so it was really difficult at first. People just thought I ate vegetables all day, which I don't. Um, but there is so much out there right now that's available that is plant-based. Some of it is even healthy for you, not all of it. Uh, and it's just so much easier now. It, it was almost a fight. I used to have to bring stuff with me, which is so silly because just go and buy when you're at the grocery store, get some chickpeas or black beans or red beans. You don't even need to get anything in the refrigerated or freezer section. But now Toronto is one of the top cities in the world for plant-based eating. There are so many restaurants. You know, there's all their copper branches coming in like crazy right now. Fresh is everywhere. If I wanted to, I can go to a different restaurant every night, but I don't. I try to eat in. It defeat the purpose of it being cheaper. Defeats the purpose of it being cheaper, right. Now the word that I get from friends is you do what you do, I do what I do, because everyone's doing their own thing now. There's the keto people, there's the gluten-free people, then there's gluten-free people who actually have celiac disease, but I think they're much less of the gluten-free people. So everyone is eating in their own way. It makes it humorous. And slightly difficult when you eat around the table. So we had yontif at my aunt's. My aunt and my mother, they made all the regular things that are made. And then my husband, God bless him, the wonderful cook, he brought a few dishes over. And guess what? Everyone liked them. Yeah. It was the first time ever that my extended family had Indian curry chickpeas at Rosh Hashanah dinner. Oh, But everyone bold. liked it. So I'm wondering uh, what the Bible says about treatment of animals um, as it relates to veganism. I, I, I ask this because I know in uh, in Israel, and part of the research I did for the article, there's a growing movement among Orthodox Jews, particularly in Jerusalem, who are becoming vegan. And veganism has become the center of this strange Venn diagram uniting Orthodox Jerusalemites and hipsters in Tel Aviv. I know I've, I've spoken with some of the rabbis there who are pushing this, this uh, very, like, bib, like uh, th th this idea that Veganism is a biblical ideal, and I'm wondering to what you can contribute. I know you have some thoughts, although it's maybe not that aggressive. You're making a, a, a lot of facial expressions right now as I'm explaining this. I'll send you the links afterwards. Please do. <laughs> that would be great. I'm part of an organization called Shemaim Va'aretz, which is a yeah, Jewish plant-based people, and it's wonderful. They get together once a year. We have a, a conference or for a few days. Uh, so I've definitely heard a lot of this, but there's no place in the Torah where it says Shabbat dinner needs to be chicken soup, gefilte fish, and roast chicken. Right. It's cultural. That it's not religious. That is completely cultural. Uh, the hipsters in Tel Aviv are pretty amazing with their commitment to plant-based food, and so is the Israeli government, actually. You know, the, the number of vegans in the Israeli army is huge. And the president uh, of Israel is a vegetarian. That I did not know. President Rivlin, vegetarian since the 1960s, I learned. So was Rev Cook, who was uh, the first chief rabbi of, uh, of Israel. Is there anything in the Bible that relates to, to veganism or eating animals? Well, it says Bal Tashchit, that we shouldn't destroy. But I, and if we're destroying animals just for eating them, why would you do that when you can eat other things? Like, what, why, we don't need to destroy these animals. They're, I don't think they were put on this earth for us to eat. That we, we were given the earth to work it and to safeguard it. We are not given everything. If Adam was created on day six and everyone was created, everything else was created beforehand, that doesn't mean we were created to eat everything that came beforehand. You know, these animals have a purpose. We might not know what their purpose is. Uh, might not be obvious to us, but there's no reason that we need to eat them. There are laws of kashrut if we choose to eat animals. 
which we should abide by, but we don't have to. We're not commanded. They're nowhere in the 613 mitzvot or the ones that still exist today when there's no temple does it say you have to eat an animal. The only time that we should have animals derivatives is at Pesach on the Seder plate, but even then we can get around it. So how do you get around it? So I have a beautiful picture of an egg that I've had for the last number of years that I've put on my Seder plate. I should have asked you to bring the picture of the egg. I would love to see this beautiful picture of an egg. It's a beautiful, you know, it has a blue background. It was just, it was photocopied in paper. Um, And we've done different things for shank bone, but for the last number of years, because my daughter is four and a half, we've used a toy bone. And then the, the sensitivity is there. We've also t- done a beat before, which has halachic basis for it, because a beat bleeds. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Okay, sorry. I mean, I shouldn't laugh at that, but it sounds a little silly. I mean, it bleeds, but it it doesn't. And tashlich doesn't the... sound silly. Throwing out your breadcrumbs <laughs> in the water. <laughs> yeah, I guess. If we're starting, if we, if I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of things that are silly in the Bible, it's a fair point. But uh, speaking from from one almost vegan to one much more vegan, I mean, doesn't it strike you ever as a bit silly to substitute these things for for pictures and and toys? I mean, doesn't it seem like just sort of a no? Because I believe in tradition. I just there was no meat in my house that year. You know, we. Did everything we had. There have been times in my house where my husband will make meat. I never will anymore. Um, and there have been times when we won't. So those years, there was no meat in our house at, at the Seder. It was a completely plant-based vegan Seder. So we just couldn't put a chicken bone on there. What if someone were to bone. say to you, that's not the way a Seder should be? That's their opinion. The last thing anyone ever needs to say to me is, that's not how you do it. We all understand halacha differently. I would say it with a smile. <laughs> a very restrained smile that you're yeah. showing me right now. Yeah. Um, Alex, anything? To, any thoughts? We haven't. I haven't spoken to you in a while. Well, I've just been debating the whole time if I should bring up this new study that says um, eating meat's not bad for you. <laughs> I've just been debating I, it. I, have I, you guys think, have you heard about this? No. I mean, as far as I understand it, eating meat is not bad for you, but eating meat twice or three times a day for every day is bad for you the results of this new study so they they didn't do an experiment themselves they just um chose to look at certain they looked at cohort studies and um i forget the other kind but they just threw out a lot of the data before looking at the results they just decided they would only look at the studies that had been shown to kind of be the most rigorous and they're result after was that there was no need for adults to cut back on the red meat intake whenever people say there was a study yeah i have a few questions one is where did the study come from where's the empirical data yeah so and there's that so but but on top of that i would also say the health benefits are only one reason to go vegan right so even if it's true that it isn't unhealthy to eat beef to to eat a steak with every meal even if that is true um it still is a tremendous waste of, of resources and water to raise cattle the way it's farmed. Yeah. Uh, there's still a tremendous amount of, of pesticides that go into growing a lot of the feed that we need to raise the animals, et cetera, et cetera. If I recall, when I was living in the United States, I still kept an ear on what was happening here in Canada, um, a close ear. D- didn't Canada's food guide completely change to make it more plant-based as well? Yeah. Last year, the new food guide is now, instead of a food pyramid, it's a plate dinner plate and half the plate is fruit and vegetables one quarter is whole grains and the other quarter is any kind of protein be it meat or legume dairy or or dairy or anything um it turns out when you don't have 
food lobbyists <laughs> making your food guides, you'll you'll end up with something different. Yeah, healthy. <laughs> yeah, I I often tell people that my diet. I don't say I'm vegan. I say my diet is the Canada Food Guide. That's and great. Just the quarter of of the plate that is uh, protein is usually not meat, but you know whatever. So, like once a month, I'll have a fish or something. That's I'm I'm totally on board with with that concept. And in that light, I don't think meat's particularly unhealthy if you choose to eat it and if it's raised in a responsible way which most of it is not and most people mm -hmm. don't abide by i've tried going vegetarian and then vegan a number of times the longest i've lasted on a couple different occasions is like a month and then i just get really tired <laughs> and then i start eating meat again and i feel better and so part of that is i need probably to better supplement <laughs> i also feel like a, 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 eating meat is easy it's often easier especially to cook because all you do is you throw a piece of meat on on a barbecue or on a grill or something i find um one of the impediments i've heard a lot about people uh, who don't want to eat vegan or eat more vegetarian food is that a lot of it's complicated like you can't just eat a can of chickpeas why not <laughs> why not you open up a can of chickpeas you put you put them in the strainer yeah you put the water over it then you add a spice to it may i recommend everything but the bagel or chili lime sauce what do you mean it's not hard you can do I, the same thing with black beans you put in a uh, rice boom perfect rice and beans yeah what's wrong with chickpeas mm. Chickpeas are great. Massage some kale. Put add some nutritional yeast. Do you know how delicious that is? All of these things are somewhat more obscure and more involved than just throwing a chicken breast on a barbecue, though. But like, you've, my killed, point you've is eaten that, an animal that had a mother. But no. But my, my point is just that a lot of uh, you know salad recipes, a lot of mixed recipes, like you have to do a lot of different chopping. You need more ingredients. What do you, you go to Metro? <laughs> how is this difficult? I, I don't understand this. I'm totally lost. I think it's just about familiarity. Really. I mean, even like there you go. It's about familiarity. Not even like vegan or non-vegan just when I was learning how to cook, things that I hadn't done before regularly seemed daunting. And it was only once I knew how to do them that it seemed right. simple, I think. I agree with you. So for example, make, make, for example, making spaghetti squash, a little difficult. You have to cut it. You have to put it in the oven. Then you have to fork out the squash so it looks like spaghetti. That's difficult. I actually disagree. I find spaghetti squash very easy <laughs> because, it's, because it's one ingredient that so you just <laughs> slice and throw it in the oven. That's an easy one. Then it's this, when you have to scoop it out so it's like spaghetti. You add a little bit of parsley, a little bit of um, uh, tomato, Roma tomato. It's delicious. That does sound good. All right. Well, for It'll the come sake. for salad. <laughs> for this, we, we could probably exchange spaghetti squash recipes <laughs> for the rest of this show, but we do have other things to talk about. So we will now move on to our next subject. As we mentioned at the top of the show, Andrew Scheer recently made some, I guess, commitments to Canada's foreign aid policies that he'll um, enact if he's elected. And one of them is about foreign aid. One of them is about prioritizing a seat on the Security Council. And and he also mentioned UNRWA. None of these are particularly surprising policies no. for, for Andrew Scheer. So, so Scheer is the conservative candidate. He's currently polling neck and neck with Justin Trudeau. Uh, leader of the Liberals. Andrew Scheer's foreign policy, he hasn't done that much on the foreign policy file yet, so this was one of his first big announcements. To be honest, none of the political parties have really talked that much about foreign policy this uh, campaign. Uh, Andrew Scheer's announcement was one of the first sort of bigger ones to get news attention, and it was basically a, an isolationist withdrawing from the national stage kind of approach, very much in stark contrast to Justin Trudeau's outward global moral leader for, for better or worse trudeau's government has has made a strong stance a moral stance against countries like saudi arabia which got us in a big kerfuffle with countries like china andrew Scheer 
appears to it, it, it's unclear that he would take a different track on either of those countries but in general his announcement was that he's going to be cutting 25 percent of canada's foreign aid budget uh, and we'll use those savings to give you a tax break. I would say in the last more than 20 years that I lived in the United States, I would agree with you. Trudeau was the most known leader of Canada um, on the global stage. I think he worked really, really hard to do that. Um, yeah. Like no one really heard of him. If I would have asked someone 10 years ago who was the prime minister when I was living in New York, they wouldn't have known. But had I asked in the last four, they would have known Trudeau for sure. Yeah. I mean, partly that's owing to his celebrity as well. Yeah. And also his stark contrast to Trump. Yes. In addition to cutting uh, foreign aid by 25%, Scheer has uh, said that he would, much like his predecessor Stephen Harper, cut aid to UNRWA, the UN... Uh, oh, I don't remember what it Refugee stands Refugee Works for. Agency. Refugee Works Agency, sure. It, it's, a, it's a UN agency that is basically just exists to uh, provide schools to... Palestinians, as it was recently explained to me by our news editor, it's the only UN agency that exists for just one group of refugees, Palestinians. It doesn't help anyone else, and uh, it, it its essence is controversial purely because of the debate over whether you can be a refugee 70 years after an event. So these are some of the, the controversies and the reasons why the conservatives typically do not support UNRWA, in addition to some anti-Semitic and sexist and generally problematic uh, curricula in the schools that, mm -hmm. they, that they teach in the West Bank. On top of all that, Andrew Scheer says he's not going to vie for a seat on the Security Council, right, Alex? Well, he said it's not going to be a priority. Not going to be a priority. The Security Council is a little bit anti-Israel. Just a little bit. Maybe that's part of it. Andrew Scheer has also earlier said that he would move the embassy to Jerusalem. Uh, the, the the Canadian embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. I find that idea, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, at odds with this otherwise withdrawing approach toward foreign policy. Personally, I find it a little bit ideologically hypocritical to say we want to withdraw from the world stage, but also we're going to make this very bold move in this one way. I, I interpret it as pandering for the Jewish vote in Canada personally, but I am How curious. How can you not see it as that way? Come on, everyone knows Harper loved Israel, and so let's go back to this Harper way of thinking by moving the by moving the embassy. I think if he moves the embassy at all, he should move it to Matula, where the Canada Center is, and that will be like Mirkaz Canada, big adol. This will be the center of Canadian support. Will be up in Matula. For anyone who doesn't know what the Canada Center is, that's the that's the only hockey arena in the country, right? In the country of Israel, it's way up yep. in the north, rarely visited by anyone. Right on the right buffer in there with Syria. Not the safest space right now. But what if we move the embassy there? Imagine how much more security would be there. It would be so much safer. I don't think, like, people say it's pandering in the sense that, like, it's not something he believes in or the conservative party believes in. I think it's something that, like, they might believe in that also they believe will help them get votes. You know, obviously it's a political move because they're politicians in a political party. But this was an interesting moment on CTV News last night. They showed a clip of Andrew Scheer calling UNRWA anti-Semitic and then... What they said is UNRWA is the United Nations uh, Refugee Works Agency. They provide camps for refugees in countries such as Syria. And that's it. They didn't give any context to why he called UNRWA anti-Semitic. Yeah. And, just like, and, and to be fair to whoever had to write that little bit of copy, UNRWA is a really complicated Oh, I know. Issue. That's Absolutely. what I was thinking. I just thought, I like some people would say it's the mainstream media bias. I, I was just like, journalists just had to rush to put together a, a piece and that was the best clip. And then they had to try to explain it in five seconds. Quickly find it on Wikipedia. What's yeah. UNRWA? Something about refugees? Yeah, I don't really know. 
Yeah, but I mean, I don't think that was necessarily the best way to present that. It, it, we all agree it's a very transparent uh, effort at pandering that he's going to cut um, funding to UNRWA, which most Canadians don't even understand. It's really only the, the Jewish population here who, who cares and is against it, and rightfully so, but it's not like you know a big campaign issue. Likewise with the Jerusalem move. Uh, I just think it's worth noting for the context, Jews are not a, a, a particularly large voting block, but there are a lot of Jews in riding, battleground ridings in the GTA Which in ones? Toronto suburbs. I mean, St. Lawrence. Specifically, my yeah. Riding. But York it's, Center it's, might be another one. Anything Although in, they've got, uh, well, Michael Levitt's the liberal MP there, and he's right. like very pro-Israel, mm-hmm. and he's Jewish. And and, um, and he writes all of uh, Trudeau's speeches about Israel, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah, I think he's very well-liked, but just demographically, you know, the, the conservatives will have a shot there. Yeah, conservatives have one in the northern Toronto writings. There's a handful that, that have maybe 20 to 30 percent Jewish populations. They, can, they generally have skewed liberal, but then under Harper, obviously, have swung conservative. This election, they do say, will hinge at least in part on uh, swing writings like the GTA suburbs, which frequently oscillate between liberals and, and conservatives. So uh, mm. Jews do play a part in that, which is why we have a bit of a an outsized role mm-hmm. in in campaign strategies. Because, I mean, what, there's only like 400,000 of us? I mean, it's not a small number, but it's not huge. But we, we have outsized political influence, I think, mm-hmm. both in terms of like our, our participation and our uh, That's action, our voices and representation in government. I, I mean, I had the opportunity to meet Harper uh, two years ago. He came to APAC and he spoke to the big, big donors and I was snuck in there because I knew enough people. And, you know, he just slammed <laughs> anyone that was not pro-Israel. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, I was at an APAC conference, you know, this, you know, pro-Israel uh, conference with you know, 14,000 other people. And Harper was there, not American, not Israeli, but he is a superstar even now after he's out on, in the pro-Israel community. Mm-hmm. I know people and do miss him for that. Th- we did do a cover story a few months ago comparing Justin Trudeau's and Stephen Harper's track records on Israel. Surprise, surprise, they're not that far apart. Really? Yeah. They're, they're, they're actually very consistent. The big difference is UNRWA. That, just, that Stephen Harper in 2010 discontinued funding to UNRWA because of its ties to Hamas specifically, which is an internationally recognized terrorist organization and, and also the government of Gaza. Justin Trudeau reinstated funding to UNRWA in 2015. That's the Big difference. Other than that, their voting records um, with regards to the UN. I and, think Canada has abstained a little bit more recently, but that's because they say they're trying to get the seat on the UN Security Council, kind of tying it back in to before. But yeah, but that's also you know I don't know very much about UN strategy. Maybe they they say they'll have more power to affect the change they want to see if they get that seat. Just to explain that, last November uh, Trudeau gave an interview to the CJN on the topic of UNRWA, and so I'll just read his. Uh, his response that he gave to Ron Sillag, uh, a reporter here. Trudeau said, if you could imagine a world in which there was no money for UNRWA, where would the funding come from? It would be obvious it would come from sources with less and less oversight. By being a part of the machinery of funding of UNRWA, we're able to make sure that there is accountability, a transparency, and a positive benefit, not just for Palestinians, but for stability in the region, which is something Canada will always support. So the argument, his argument is basically better to fight from within. Now, is that a legitimate stance or is he also just trying to pander to some left-wing voters who would generally support UNRWA? Maybe it's a bit of both and it's kind of a convenient answer. Certainly, it's alienated the Jewish community to a degree, though 
Actually, even if he didn't support UNRWA, I'm not. I don't think people would vote for him anyway. Or, or Jews would vote for him anyway over the conservatives well, just because of political leanings. I mean, a lot of Jews do vote liberal. That's true. It's true. A, a lot of Jews vote liberal, it, it, and, and actually, a lot of the writings right now federally are liberal. So I shouldn't yeah, say. I, I'm, but I, I mean, the people who wouldn't vote for yes. Trudeau. I don't know. I, to I know what extent this is going to be a game changer. So when um, this was a funny story. The Sherman family, mm-hmm. a few, like before the last election uh, was like holding a, a fundraiser for Trudeau or something. And then a, a grassroots Jewish community protest started outside their home because people were saying that he was going to be like anti-Israel and anti-Semitic. And it was like, it was really bizarre and kind of, I think totally, totally outrageous because um, they, I mean, maybe the rhetoric is different between Harper and, and Trudeau. And, you know, you can debate how important rhetoric is, but in terms of policy and decisions, they're really not very far apart at all. And there's, Nothing like that suggested that the Liberal Party is is going to be anything but a strong ally to Israel um, in terms of like, you know, what they've said at the highest levels and how they've operated at the highest levels. This isn't like a real issue uh, the way people seem to want it to be. Last topic for today. Do Jews really need to worry about this? The subject, Spain's offer of a rate of return to so far 130,000 Jews of Sephardic descent have taken them up and said, yes, we want to be Spanish citizens after our uh, forefathers were expelled. And foremothers. And foremothers were expelled, what, 500 years ago? In 1492. In 1492. And Portugal uh, had a similar offer as well. The question is whether this is something Jews should support. If we start normalizing rights of return for all these countries and we start encouraging it, it opens up some doors that Jews may be <laughs> uncomfortable with. So the question is, <laughs> do Jews need to worry about this? Yeah, I'll say this is this is fun, kind of spinning on its head. Like, oh, obviously this is good for Jews, but it is like worth considering. I think you know, as long as Israel is j- clearly judged by a double standard in terms of right of return, <laughs> uh, you know, that's I think it has been a double standard. Whatever your stance on on all that stuff, countries generally don't give back land or rights to people that uh, were taken away from them centuries ago. You know, as long as no country does that or is expected to do it, and Israel does is expected to do it, that's a double standard. But if all of a sudden that becomes the norm and countries do start doing that and, you know, they give, you know, Canadians give Indigenous people back their land with full rights and, and the United States says that and all these countries allow people to return who are expelled then all of a sudden, maybe it's not a double standard anymore. And what that would look like would be very, very different for Israel because it would cease to exist. What are the odds that the world is moving towards a reparations-friendly oh, global I, environment? I, 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 this is more a theoretical discussion than like what I think will happen. Okay, but are there other famous examples of rights of return? I'm not sure. Silence. Okay. Rabbi, what were you going to say? I just say, when you look at the world... Through the lens of geopolitics, it's so much more complicated than when you look at the world of what we do on a day-to-day basis. It's fascinating. It doesn't even seem like it's real. It feels like it's a, a game or, or a movie because there's so many pieces involved. Uh, it makes us realize how the world is connected on so many levels that we're not even aware of. As far as I'm concerned, I think that obviously this right of return is, is long overdue and good. Uh, the question that I would have is how many centuries have to pass before right of returns become accessible? It seems like the, it, it It reminds me of Justin Trudeau's apology tour, where he would go around every month and apologize to a different group that the, the 
Canada, some government 100, 200 years ago has wronged, right? That's apologize. so Canadian, by the way. <laughs> it, but it, it is, but it, I mean, just, I, I know that, uh, an actual right of return is a much more tangible yeah. thing <laughs> than an apology, but, but it's the idea that we can, it's much easier for governments in 2019 to own up to the mistakes that were made before any of us were born, right? So, like, you look at an issue like Palestine. I mean, that's the elephant in the room that we're talking about is Palestinians and, and, and their uh, claim to right of return. Maybe 150 years need to bet, right? Maybe it's too soon. Maybe a government, once people don't remember the initial uh, event, might actually start to warm to it. I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on the, the framework. I mean, if you're sure, you're looking at it in terms of practicality. Yeah, like the farther along it is, the less people would run a return and the less cost there actually is. But the, in terms less, of, the less raw it is. Yeah, but in terms of like, if it's an actual right, I think the less time has passed, the, the stronger the right is. If it's a right that, that people actually believe should exist. So that means then that if you have ancestry from Spain, like if probably if you're Sephardic, yeah. that means you can get an, a European Union passport. Yeah, so you can travel but, through everywhere through Europe, except for probably the United Kingdom. Except the United Kingdom, <laughs> and also <laughs> only while the EU exists, which as it at the rate it's crumbling, eh, maybe you got five years. That goes back to my comment on geopolitics. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yes, that that is the implication. Uh, it, it's when you think of it, it's actually a monumental thing mm-hmm. for for Spain and Portugal to do to to finally own up to because um, the Jewish communities there have long been been. Uh, I mean, it's it's culturally extremely rich and vibrant mm-hmm. and very unique. And, and we had and an Latino amazing culture. golden age of Spain. There was yeah. unbelievable thought and art and culture that came out of there. And it doesn't figure that much, as far as I can tell, into the politics these days. Um, when I was in Spain a, about a year ago, I found the Jewish communities fairly withdrawn, um, partly because of the rise of, of many far far right groups in Europe. Um, but also uh, just a sort of general culture of laying low. Um, in, in th- there weren't a lot of ornate synagogues. So they were sort of, they're more tucked away. There's uh, a lot of young Madrid. people there. There's a lot of young people. There's a lot of kids from abroad who are studying there, and they're getting hooked up with families for high holidays. And it's not just Chabad. So there are progressive and Masorti communities that are being reborn in Spain. And I wouldn't be surprised if this if, if this actually brings even of the 130,000, I don't know, 50,000, even this, if 50,000 yeah. of them move back. I think they said 8,000 have been processed in the JT article so far. Wow. So there you go. Like if... if that would create an influx, particularly because a lot of the Jews, I think, in, in Latin America, again, this is based on my limited experience traveling around the region and speaking with some of them, um, they tend to be quite more dedicated because they're so much more of a of a minority and because life is so much harder. So if they bring their traditions back to Spain, back to or, or, or Portugal, that could be a big redefining thing for the region. I bet the... Spain and Portugal, they framed it in terms of, you know, the rights of these, the ancestors of these people to return. I think they just want more Jews. <laughs> I think they think they need, like, high-quality immigrants, and they think Jews are high-quality immigrants or something like that. I don't know. Not if you <laughs> if you're getting them from South America, because the the, the, the the politics there between colonizer and colonized run a little bit more racist yeah, than that. I guess that's true. But I do wonder how much of that is, like, that positive anti-Semitic kind of twinge to it, too. Where it's like, if this was a different group of people, what about the Muslims who were expelled or something? Well, Are they invited my, back? That was going to be my question. 
are there large, active Muslim Brotherhood groups in Spain and Portugal? Is this a place where Jews want to go? Would would we feel safe there? You got to think if there are 130,000 people have applied already, these Jews could have moved to Israel whenever they wanted. A lot of Jews have left South American communities sure. to and and or Miami and the, and the communities themselves mm-hmm. have been crippled by it because. In South America, they're making low wages and job and the economy's tough. And, and yeah, you can move to Israel and, and a lot of them have. Maybe they see Europe as a safer bet compared to that. And I mean, let's remember, if you're coming from Lima, which has notoriously high crime rates, maybe putting up with stares and, you know, some like verbal anti-Semitism in Europe isn't isn't such a isn't such a step down. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Canadian Jewish Schmooze, and thank you to Rabbi Robin Fryer Bodson for joining us. You can follow me on Twitter at Shrobin, S H R O B Y N. Um, I'm also on Instagram, Rabbi RFB, and I'm at Bet basically all the time. I look forward to seeing you there. Gmar Chatimatova. Wonderful. Our show was uh, edited by myself. Our intro music was by Vanya Zhuk. Our outro music by Lache Swing. And David Collin is Spider-Man without the superpowers. Thanks for listening. And Shana Tova to everyone. <laughs> <laughs>